Turn with me to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. We looked at this psalm about four years ago, but I want to revisit it today. I think you'll see why as we unpack it. Uh, this, is the, this is a psalm I've been thinking about this week. It's been on my mind. It's probably the oldest psalm in the Psalter. If you check the inscription at the beginning of the psalm, you'll see there's a byline that tells us this psalm is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So this psalm was written some 450 years before the time of David, and Moses was the inspired author of this psalm. I think it's the only psalm in the Psalter that Moses wrote, as far as we know. Now, obviously, the way the psalms are ordered in our Bibles is not chronological, but they're, they're actually organized. The psalms organized in five books, and Psalm 90 is the first psalm in book four. And it's the only psalm, as I said, that is attributed to Moses, and as the inscription suggests, this is a record of a prayer he prayed. It's a prayer for grace and mercy, and we're mainly going to focus, or at least at the end, we're going to focus especially on verse 8, but before we get there, I want to look with you at the psalm as a whole so that you have a better idea of the context and what, what is it that precipitated this psalm? Why did Moses write it? The framework of it is built around a list of God's attributes. Notice Moses speaks of the eternality of God in verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He alludes to the sovereignty of God in verse 3. He speaks of the timelessness of God in verse 4. He mentions the wrath of God in verse 7. He refers to the omniscience of God in verse 8, and then he returns to the wrath or as the Legacy Standard Bible has it, verses 9 and 11, the fury of God. The opening 11 verses of this prayer are all expressions of worship and confession. And notice that his emphasis is on the fearsome attributes of God, culminating with an overwhelming sense of God's terrifying fury against evil. But then in verse 12, he starts making petitions. And now he turns his attention to the merciful attributes of God. Verse 13, he prays for grace and compassion, and he specifically mentions God's loving kindness in verse 14, God's majesty or his glory in verse 16, and then God's favor in verse 17. And woven into that abbreviated summary of divine attributes is a purposeful series of contrasts. Because for everything he mentions that is true about God, he acknowledges that the opposite is true about humanity. So that every one of the divine attributes he names has a corresponding contradiction in humanity because of our fallenness. Although we are, all men and women are created in the image of God, these are some of the more obvious ways sin has marred the image of God in humanity. And for example, God is eternal, verse 2, but we are made of dust, verse 3. God is from everlasting to everlasting, verse 2. Our lives are soon gone and we fly away, verse 10. And a thousand years are like one day to God, verse 4. Eighty years is about the most time the average person can expect to live, which tells you there's nothing average about Laurel Martin. She told me this morning that she's like 10 weeks away from her 96th birthday. She's trying to convince me that I'm not old, but I feel it. He says, another contrast, verses 16 and 17, God is majestic, verses 16 and 17. We are full of iniquity, verse 8. A whole millennium passes by like a watch in the night in God's estimation, verse 4. But our short lives seem full of labor and wickedness, verse 10. So the contrast is between the eternality and the glory of God versus the frailty and misery of human existence. Now, you might think that that's a morbid or depressing theme, but it's not. There's actually a note of triumph through this prayer. It begins and ends with a celebration of what God means to his people And that's what Moses is thinking about here. He's not thinking morbid thoughts. He is realizing the brevity of life. But in the midst of all of that, he's he's thinking glorious thoughts about 
God. And that's why Moses has so much to say about God's attributes. This is an anthem to God's glory and goodness, and he sets that truth deliberately against the stark backdrop of human misery so that we can see the wonder and mercy of God's character and his blessing on us and appreciate it even better. Now, of course, there's a historical setting for this psalm, and I want to remind you of it. Remember that Moses, after Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because of their own sin and unbelief. More than a million Israelites left Egypt. This is really hard to fathom in your mind, but the record is clear. More than a million left Egypt at the Exodus. Exodus 12:37 indicates that there were 600,000 men of fighting age. So there would have been about as many adult women as men, and so conservatively, there were at least 1.2 million, at the very least, but out of that mass of people, there were, there were lots of older people, older than fighting age, and a lot of younger people, children. So millions, literally probably 2 million or more who left Egypt, and out of all of them, there were only two who were adults when they left Egypt who made it into the Promised Land, Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses never got to enter Canaan. The entire nation of Israelites were wanderers and vagabonds for 40 years until that whole generation died off. And the reason was that they had provoked God to displeasure by constantly complaining and rebelling and falling into the grossest kinds of sins and whatnot. Numbers 13 describes how when it was time to enter the promised land, they they sent scouts out to check it out and All but two of these scouts came back with an evil report. They were frightened and timid, and they said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. That's Numbers 13.31. In fact, put a marker in Psalm 90. Before we get into it, turn back to Numbers, Numbers 14 for a minute. Let's look at the context for this psalm. Now, remember, those scouts came back, and all except Joshua and Caleb gave a negative report. They said, we don't think we can win this war. They claimed that the land was filled with giants. They said the Israelites were like grasshoppers compared to them. In other words, they came back and called God a liar. In Numbers 14, if you're there, look at verses 2 and 3. It says, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? They were in an inhospitable wilderness, and, and although the Lord had supplied them with manna and water by miraculous means and kept them alive in the wilderness all this time, they had not learned to trust him. And they asked, why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And they even had decided to choose a new leadership, someone to replace Moses as their commander-in-chief. Verse 4, they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And then verses 5 through 9 describe how Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb pleaded with the people. Verse 9, Do not rebel against Yahweh, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has been removed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. But, verse 10, the people were about to stone Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb to death when suddenly, verse 10, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. So the visible manifestation of God's glory, the Shekinah, appears in the tabernacle. And verse 11, Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me and how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I've done in their midst? And the Lord actually threatens here to wipe out the entire nation and just start over with Moses, verse 12. I will strike them with pestilence and will dispossess them, and I I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses, you remember, interceded for the people and pleaded with God and begged for forgiveness on behalf of the people, verse 19. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness 
of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now, because it had been one long procession of rebellion and grumbling, and God had always forgiven them, and again now he's gracious. He forgives them, verse 20. Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Now, this is a vital point. These were redeemed people. These are God's people. But God is saying, my glory is what's paramount. And as Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. And so as a consequence of their unbelief, God forbade them to enter the promised land. He condemned them to 38 more years of wandering in the wilderness until everyone in that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, died off. In fact, look down at verse 28. We're still in Numbers 14. As I live, declares Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. In other words, everybody 20 years old and up who participated in this rebellion, his corpse is going to fall in the wilderness. Verse 30, surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your little ones, however, who you said would become plunder, I will bring them in so that they will know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. And so that's how one whole generation of Israelites were kept out of the promised land and condemned to die in the wilderness. And from that point on, they knew that they would live the rest of their lives suffering the consequences of their sin. And a whole generation, except for two men, had their bodies scattered in grave sites all over the wilderness. This is one of the bleakest times in Israel's history. And Scripture continually points back to the sin of that generation as a negative example for us. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 11 and 12 talks about the sins of the Israelites, and then it says these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And by the way, it wasn't long after this incident in Numbers 14 that Moses himself lost his temper in front of the Israelites And God forbade even Moses from entering the promised land. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 20. Here's, in fact, Numbers 20, verse 12. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So Moses, barred from entering the promised land himself, writes our psalm. So now turn back to Psalm 90. And that's the context for this passage. Moses and his entire generation, all the people he led as adults, know that they will never enter the promised land in this earthly life. They had left Egypt in search of a land filled with milk and honey. Their hearts were set on it at one point, but now Canaan will never be their dwelling place, and they are condemned to live in tents and and wander in the wilderness until they die. And by the time he writes Psalm 90, Moses has evidently come to grips with the fact that he will never enter Canaan. But he realizes that he already has an even better dwelling place than any earthly land that flows with milk and honey. And that's why this is such an upbeat psalm. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Even back in Egypt, when the Israelites were condemned to the worst kind of slavery, God was their refuge. And during those long years in the wilderness, God was the one in whom they lived and moved and had their being. He was their fortress and their strong tower. He was their dwelling place from generation to generation. And so Moses rehearses the eternality of God, verse 2, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And notice the the parallelism between verses 1 and 2. From generation to generation and from everlasting to everlasting, 
What he's celebrating is the fact that God is eternal and unchanging. And then Moses contrasts that fact with the unstable and fleeting mortality of men. Remember, Moses is very aware of his own frailty, and by this time, so were all the Israelites. In fact, I did the math on this, and if there were a million adults at Kadesh Barnea, that's where God condemned them to wander for 38 more years until all the people died, everyone over 20, and, and suppose, so there's a million at least over 20. Let's just go with a million because we're going to estimate this conservatively. And that entire generation dies off in 38 years. That is an average of 72 deaths every single day. That's a lot of carcasses scattered in the wilderness, and that's a lot of human misery. And that's what Moses says in verse 3 of our psalm. The, the New King James Version says it like this, you turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. The word destruction there is a Hebrew word that speaks of something that's been pulverized, literally dust, which is exactly what the Legacy Standard Bible says, and I love this, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of men. And that's exactly what happened to those people in the wilderness. They turned back into dust. God himself had said to Adam in Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you will return. And that's what this verse refers to. God returns all of us eventually to dust. God is sovereign over life and death. He is the one who does this. It's attributed to him, the action. He's talking about God's sovereignty and saying, you and I, we're nothing but dust, and our bodies will soon go back to the dust. But, verse 4, God dwells outside of time. Time does not even occur to him. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night would be just a few hours. A thousand years are like just a few hours to God. And in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, Peter says, actually, it works both ways, that with the Lord, a day, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. So it isn't like all this time just passes by God quickly. The point is, time doesn't pass him by. He dwells outside of it. God himself is timeless, and he is not bound by time. Again, he dwells outside of it. But Moses' point here is about human mortality. He knew, of course, that some of the patriarchs had lived nearly a thousand years. And honestly, it's hard to imagine living that long. I don't want to do it. But Moses says, even a thousand years is nothing to God. And notice how he sees God as utterly sovereign, eternal, Almighty, and according to verse 2, he is the one who brought forth the earth and the world. He is the one who turns us back into dust. So Moses realizes that human mortality and human misery are under the sovereign control of divine providence. God is the one who sweeps men away in the sleep of death, verses 5 and 6. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which, uh, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it blossoms and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it withers and dries up. That's what we're like, just like a temporary weed. And furthermore, Moses recognizes that God was ultimately the source and the cause of all the distress they were suffering because every evil that had come upon them was a fruit of their sin, and it was the result of God's displeasure over their sin. Verse 7, for we've been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence, for all our days have declined in your fury. We've finished our years like a sigh, and as for the days of our lives, they contain 70 years, or if due to might, 80 years, Yet their pride is but labor and wickedness, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Now, that is a, that's a great description of what life felt like to the, those Israelites in the wilderness. And by the way, the, what he says here is true of all humanity in general. 
It's true of our life as we experience it. Human misery and calamity and sorrow and death, these are all the fruits of sin, which is not to say that every sorrow you endure is a direct result of some sin you personally have committed, but it is true in general that every human sorrow up to and including death results from the curse of sin, Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And if it sometimes feels like our days are few and full of trouble, it's because that is the nature of this earthly life. The earth itself is cursed. Verse 9, all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. And in the King James Version, the second half of that verse says, we spend our years as a tale that is told. But the Hebrew expression technically means we finish our years like a groan. And that's true, isn't it? Life ends with a groan. The the end of life is like an extended sigh of pain. Life doesn't actually get easier or more pleasant as you get older. It's the opposite. And at the end, you die... And even if you're fortunate to live long enough to die of old age, the end of your life will be like a drawn-out groan of agony. And meanwhile, this life is full of groaning and affliction. Paul says all nature groans. He recognized that in Romans 8, 22 and 23. So life is short and it's full of trouble. Verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. That's why I've been thinking about this all week. Or if due to might, 80 years, maybe. So the typical human lifespan is just 70 or 80 years at the most. Incidentally, Moses himself lived to be 120. But after this, after this, the normal human lifespan was shortened. And I would argue it's because God is merciful. 80 years tops, yet Their pride is but labor and wickedness. And in fact, I like how the Christian Standard Bible translates it. If we're strong, we might live 80 years, but even the best of those years are struggle and sorrow. 80 years of sweat and tears, but soon it is gone and we fly away. And all of that leads Moses to reflect on the reality of divine wrath against sin. Verse 11, who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? He's suggesting that none of us really thinks seriously enough about the gravity of God's hatred of evil and his wrath against sin. Moses is confessing here that no matter how much you might fear God's wrath, his wrath against sin actually turns out to be more than equal to the worst thing we could ever imagine. Just consider the biblical descriptions of hell. God's wrath is infinitely worse than just about anyone actually fears. But notice, and here's the good part, because you think, this is really bleak. What is this guy's problem? But notice, it doesn't cause Moses to despair. It doesn't cause me to despair either, because Moses tells us and reminds us of the goodness of God as well, and that is what launches him into the petition phase of this prayer. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In other words, he's saying, help us keep both the brevity of this life and the realities of eternity in proper perspective so that we can be truly wise people. And then he pleads with God for compassion. Return, O Yahweh, how long will it be? And be sorry for your slaves. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness so that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. So he recognizes that by God's grace, it is possible, despite all the bleakness of life, it is possible to be glad all your days. And he realizes that although Even Moses can't erase the consequences of his sin. His life is not hopeless. He is not dreading what's ahead or seeing the future with a grim outlook, despite the fact that he described it so grimly. He knows that the mercies of God are inexhaustible and that God abundantly pardons. And God can even restore the years that the locust has eaten. So Moses prays for a special outpouring of God's blessing. Verse 15, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. 
and the years we have seen evil. In other words, give us blessing that is at least equal to our trouble. Let your work appear to your slaves and your majesty to their sons. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. By the way, God answered that prayer. He's praying, Lord, help us to keep focused on you because that's the only way we can endure this miserable life. And God answered that prayer. The work of Moses' hands was surely established, wasn't it? I mean, his life's work was by no means wasted. And, and he wasn't kept out of the promised land forever because at the transfiguration, when Christ revealed his glory, remember Moses and Elijah were there talking with Jesus. So Moses did get blessing more than equal to his trouble and and infinitely more. After all, God was his dwelling place. That comes back to that truth. And God is an infinitely better dwelling place than the land of Canaan. And that is the whole point of this psalm. We're dying creatures. Our earthly comforts are few and only temporary. This life is going to end shortly, and even if you die of old age, it's a long process of decline in order to get to that point. So the very best you can hope for is that your life will end like a drawn-out groan, but if God is your dwelling place, then you have an eternal habitation because God himself is eternal. And not only that, if God is your dwelling place, then he can bless you even in this sin-cursed world. He will even bless you more than the days you've been afflicted. And certainly the the blessings of heaven are infinitely greater than all the miseries of this life combined. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to be revealed to us. So there is a lot for any believer to look forward to, no matter how miserable this life gets, which is really a wonderful truth, isn't it? And so that's the message of this psalm. All of that is just introduction, and almost half our time is already gone. So what I want to do in the remainder of our time is focus on verse 8, where Moses says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And by the way, the Hebrew word used there speaks of the face, presence. It actually means countenance. It's talking about the Lord's immediate face-to-face omnipresence. It's the same thing David writes about in Psalm 139, where he says, you've enclosed me behind and before. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. In other words, we can never hide from the face of God. And in the King James Version, verse 8 in our Psalms, Psalm is translated this way. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. So now, this whole psalm is about seeing things from the divine perspective. If we would simply try to see everything the way God sees it, then, and see God as he really is, then everything else in life, and life itself, would look completely different to us. So that what seems like a long time actually turns out to be no time at all. And what seems important in an earthly context, even, even something as big as entering the promised land, ultimately it's of no consequence whatsoever in the perspective of eternity. What's really important is to have God as your eternal dwelling place. And on the other hand, some of the things that we think aren't really important in this life are actually a much bigger deal than you would ever imagine. Our sin, for instance. And Moses is confessing in verse 8 that even our secret sins are fully known to God. God doesn't ignore those sins. You may think they're secret, but they don't escape his notice. But on the contrary, he has set our iniquities before him, even our secret sins, in the light of his countenance, so that everything we might think we do in secret, we're actually doing those things in the face of God. He sees them all, and that is no trivial matter. Now, I want to look closely at this 
this idea of secret sins, because I think if you'll do a self-inventory, you probably have to acknowledge, like all the rest of us, that the very worst sins you struggle with are secret sins, things you don't want to be known to others, things you would be ashamed to have uncovered or exposed. And naturally, whatever you're most ashamed of, you, you want to keep that secret. And so, in all likelihood, your worst sins are secret ones, and Moses understands that. And, and so, I don't know about you, but to me, this verse, verse 8, is a frightening verse on one level. It's fitting that it comes in a context where Moses is talking about the awesome, terrifying power of God's wrath against sin, because nothing is more terrifying than the thought of our secret sins in the light of God's countenance. But now, having looked already at the larger context of this whole psalm, what I want to do this morning is make three observations about verse 8. And so this is the outline you want to take down if you're a note-taker. Here are three truths that emerge from verse 8 that ought to make us terrified to sin in secret. Three truths that ought to make us terrified to sin in secret. Number one, secret sins are not really as secret as you might think. You know, you can sometimes keep your secret sins hidden from other people, but there is no way to keep a secret sin from God. You can't put a fig leaf over it and pretend it never happened. He knows about it as soon as you do it. In fact, he knows about it before you do it. He sees you do it, even if it's just an evil thought. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. And in Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord himself speaks, and he says, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being. So, of course, God sees everything we do as well. Job 34, verses 21 and 22 says, His eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There's no darkness or shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. You can't hide what you do from God. And in Jeremiah 23.24 God himself asks, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? Do not I fill the heavens and the earth? And I've already mentioned Psalm 139. That's the one where that psalm is all about God's omniscience and his omnipresence. And the whole point is that there is nowhere you can go that God doesn't see, and there's nothing you can do that uh, to hide any secret from him. And even what you think, he knows about it. So listen to the opening verses of Psalm 139. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. And he continues, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will bruise me and the light around me will be night, Even the darkness is not too dark for you, and the night is bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So David there in that psalm is confessing there's nothing that can be hidden from God, meaning you can't hide your sins from God. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. So there's really no such thing as a secret sin. All of our sin is known already because it's already known to God. And so even the sins that we try our hardest to cover up, those are naked and open before God's eyes. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. In other words, God not only sees those things you think you do in secret, you will give an account to him for it. And not only that, this is an even more terrifying thought, All your secret sin will one day be exposed. In Luke 12, verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, Be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and nothing hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. 
So why do we sin secretly? Why would we ever think that it's morally any different to break the law of God in secret than to do it openly in the sight of everyone? Because in a way, secret sin is worse than open rebellion because the sin we do in secret is automatically compounded with hypocrisy. And the secrecy of the act becomes an impediment to true repentance because it's pretty hard to repent of something while you're trying to cover it up. So think about that. If we're ashamed to have other people know our sin, shouldn't we be even more ashamed by the realization that God already sees and knows the deepest secrets of our hearts? So why do we do that? Is it because we don't fear God the way we should? That's, I think, what Moses is suggesting here, why he keeps referring to the fury of the Lord and, and the wrath of God. If you think it's okay to sin because God is rich in mercy, that's the sin of presuming on his grace. That was the sin of the evil false teachers described in Jude 4, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into sensuality. They use God's goodness as an excuse for their sin. Jude, Jude describes them as damned without hope. He calls them wild waves of the sea, casting up their shame like foam, and wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. In other words, the, the, idea, the idea that grace grants us permission to sin is really a hellish doctrine. If you think it's okay to sin if, because nobody sees it. If you imagine that there's no real evil in an act that no one discovers, then you don't understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Or if you think God will automatically disregard your sin just because he is merciful, then you don't have the first idea of what God thinks of sin. He hates sin. Sin cost God's son his life. God is more displeased than anyone when we sin. And in fact, have you ever realized that those who deliberately practice secret sins, what they're saying is they're practical atheists. The person who willfully sins in secret has atheism in his heart. If you think there's, any, if there's anything that you indulge in secretly that you wouldn't ever dream of doing in front of me, a wicked word you wouldn't use in my presence, or, or something that's unwholesome that you would never look at with, with me looking over your shoulder, or whatever. And yet, you can do that knowing that God is looking at you. That's atheism. The person who does that is showing more respect and reverence for other creatures than he's showing to God. Psalm 36, verse 1, transgression declares to the ungodly within his heart, there is no dread of God before his eyes. You couldn't behave like that if you genuinely feared God. Psalm 10 says, this is one of the characteristics of the wicked, of the unregenerate. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. Verse 13, he said in his heart, God will not require an account. But the psalmist says God has seen it already, and he will call us to account. And that ought to provoke us to fear. It's the very thing that Moses is writing about in the context of our psalm. Verse 7, by your wrath we have been dismayed. And that word dismayed means terrified and utterly chagrined and undone, horrified. Hebrews 10.31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that brings me to a second observation that I want to make about this verse. Point one, secret sins are not as secret as you might think. Here's point two, secret sins are not as safe as you might think. As Moses is writing this psalm, he realizes, of course, that many of his troubles are the direct consequences of his own sin. The whole nation is suffering the just fruits of their own rebellion. And, of course, Moses understands that all of our earthly troubles are ultimately the fruit of our fallenness, and that's why he says in verse 7, we are consumed by your anger, we are terrified by your wrath. That is the version from the Christian Standard Bible, and it captures, I think, the sense of the text very well. The ESV says, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are 
dismayed. But the Hebrew words are powerful. We are annihilated by your anger. We are terrified by your fury against our sin. And so Moses is very conscious of the relationship between sin and suffering, and he's acknowledging the righteousness of God's wrath. He's not complaining that God is being unfair here. He's actually seeing his sin from God's point of view and simply acknowledging his own mortality and frailty and sinfulness. And and I want to stress again, this doesn't mean that all calamity is a direct retribution for some sin that you personally committed. It doesn't mean that every time something bad happens, God is punishing you for some specific act that you committed. Remember when we studied the healing of the blind man in John 9, Jesus explicitly made this point. He said in John 9, 3, that the man's blindness was not a punishment for his sin or his parents' sin, but it had a higher purpose so that the works of God might be manifested in him. And sometimes, like in the experience of Job, calamity comes to us for for good reasons, not directly related to any chastisement for our sins, but to test us or perfect us or conform us to the image of Christ. And yet still, all calamity is a result of the curse that sin brought on this world because of Adam. There wouldn't be any sorrow at all if there weren't any sin. So sickness and trials and the drudgery of life, all of these are part of the curse that came because of sin. And the reason we have so much trouble, the reason all of us have trouble is all of us are sinners. And therefore, all of our troubles ought to serve us as a reminder of how much God hates sin. As much as we hate the curse of sin, God hates sin itself even more. And Moses realizes that God thinks worse of our sin than we do. If God's judgments sometimes seem harsh, it's because he is perfectly righteous and he understands better than we do the depth of evil that is in sin, the the exceeding sinfulness of sin. God understands that. He sees our sins as they really are, which is exactly what he means in verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. If we could see our sin the way God sees it, we, we could really under, if we could really understand the, the blackness and the, the monstrosity of our sins and, and the multitude of them, how often we sin, if we knew the vast measure of evil that exists in every sin, we wouldn't be able to endure the horror of that reality. And yet, we somehow imagine that evil is okay, that it's safe for us to sin as long as no one ever finds out about it. What harm could there be in something no one else even knows? doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody knows about it. What's the big deal? But what makes sin evil in the first place is it's rebellion against God, and he does know, so no sin is safe. I mean, think about the original sin. They ate the forbidden fruit. So who was hurt by that? It wasn't because it hurt someone else. It was evil because it was rebellion against God. And it unleashed a whole universe of every evil you see ultimately stems back to Adam's disobedience. And and if you make a practice of sinning in secret, eventually your sin will betray you in public. Proverbs 13, 21, evil pursues sinners. Isaiah 3, 11, woe to the wicked. It will go badly for them for what the wicked has dealt out will be done to him. And 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Lord will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts. Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. be sure your sin will find you out. That sin that you think is secret is neither secret nor safe. It's going to come back on you. You can't keep sin a secret. You can't contain it by covering it up. You can't put a leash on it and control it. That's why the only remedy for sin is to mortify it, put it to death completely. Listen to what Spurgeon said about that. He said, you may labor to conceal your vicious habit, but it will come out. You cannot help it. You keep your little pet sin at home, but mark this. When the door is ajar, the dog will be out in the street. Wrap him up in your jacket, put him, 
put over him fold after fold of hypocrisy to try to keep him secret, and the wretch will be singing someday when you are in company. You cannot keep the evil animal still. Your sin will gad about, and what is more, someday you won't mind it. A man who indulges in sin privately by degrees gets his forehead as hard as brass. And he was right. Sin is inherently destructive, and the more you try to keep a lid on it, the more it will eat away at your soul. David described his attempt to cover his own sin in Psalm 32 when he expressed his repentance for that sin with Bathsheba. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. And that is the very reason that most of the Pharisees, despite their religious fastidiousness, were damned. According to Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, they cleansed the outside of the cup of the platter, but inside they were full of robbery and wickedness. They had practiced hypocrisy for so long, keeping their sin inside them, trying so hard to keep it covered that their hearts and minds and consciences were utterly corrupt and completely hardened, and that's why they hated Christ. Secret sin is destructive to the soul. There's nothing safe about it just because it's a secret. In fact, did you know that in virtually every case of serious spiritual failure I've ever seen in the church, practically every discipline case we ever have dealt with in my 40 years at Grace Church, the failure goes back to secret sins. Every time I've ever known someone who showed a lot of spiritual potential, but they fell into some disqualifying sin. In just about every case I know of where we've had to exercise church discipline by totally excommunicating someone, virtually every instance I've ever known when someone who once professed to love Christ fell away from the faith, always the cause is traceable back to some secret sin in that person's life, hypocrisy, a double life, a secret sin that they practice thinking, no one will ever find out about this. It is the most destructive thing you can do to your own spiritual health. If you ever disqualify yourself spiritually, it will most likely be because of your secret sins, which is a good reason to mortify those sins in particular, right? If you find yourself thinking you can safely sin when no one is looking, you desperately need to cultivate the fear of God. Secret sin is not as safe as you might think. Now, I have one more point. If you're taking notes, here's a review. Point one, secret sins are not as secret as you might think. Point two, secret sins are not as safe as you might think. Here's point three. Secret sins are not as satisfying as you might think. One of the reasons people harbor secret sins is because those types of sins often promise satisfying pleasures. You know, people indulge in lust and fornication, pornography, or whatever secret sins they do, usually because they have bought the lie that these things offer some kind of satisfaction. Some people who, by all outward appearances, are clean and sober, secretly take drugs or indulge in drunkenness in private because they imagine they can get some kind of satisfaction from that. And Scripture acknowledges that there are certain pleasures in sin, and those pleasures may last for a short while, but they never really satisfy. Hebrews 11.25 says this about Moses, the author of our psalm, that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That's why he left Egypt in the first place. Pleasure of sin never lasts long. Job 20 verse 5 says, the shouts of joy of the wicked are short, and the gladness of the godless is momentary. Proverbs 23.32 says this about the pleasures of too much wine. In the end, like a serpent, it bites, and like a viper, it stings. And James 5.5 says to the rich, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and lived in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. But now, James says, verse 1, it's time to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The pleasures of sin never last, and the fruit of sin is always bad. Sin cannot satisfy. That's the, 
the big lie of the serpent. He always promises satisfaction, but he never delivers. So what can truly satisfy? What is the satisfaction we crave? Moses knew, he understood it perfectly. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Despite all the misery of this life, there is satisfaction to be found in the fact that God is our habitation. And only he can make us truly glad, verse 15. Only if we make him our dwelling place can we be assured of eternal satisfaction. And listen to David from Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the sons of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are satisfied from the richness of your house. You give them to drink of the river of your delights. And Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And I think what the psalmist means there is this. I'll be satisfied when I bear your likeness, when, when I'm perfectly conformed to the image of the Son of God. That's what will satisfy me. And until then, that's what I should pursue for satisfaction because that is the only true satisfaction. Real satisfaction, because that's what we're made for, right? Made in the image of God to glorify God. So that's the only thing that can satisfy us because it's what we were created to do. Real satisfaction can never be found in the shadows of some secret sin. Real satisfaction is found only in the bright light of God's countenance and only for those who by faith have made the Lord their dwelling place. Isaiah 55 verse 1 is an open invitation to those who thirst, inviting us to Make God our dwelling place. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in richness. He's talking there about spiritual food, that every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that's what we live by. So how does a person who secretly indulges a love for sin find forgiveness and spiritual healing? Still in Isaiah, verses, Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him turn to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Jesus said the same thing, John 6, 35. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. A chapter later, John 7, 37, he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then the last chapter of Scripture has a similar invitation, Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to receive the water of life without cost. That's what truly satisfies. That's the only thing that can truly satisfy. Moses understood that. That's what he's trying to teach us in this psalm. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. And as David prayed in Psalm 19, cleanse us from secret faults. Give us grace and wisdom to search our own hearts and mortify every secret sin and every hidden thing that dishonors you. And then satisfy us with your mercy so that we can rejoice and be glad all of our days. Give us more grace than we have trouble and let the beauty of our Lord be upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.